Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello. Hey. Welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from high above Bryant Park in the Garment District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. I am, Amen. <laughs> I'm here today with friend and friend of the Garment District, Yoli Teng. Um, Yoli, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. So, um, a little bit on you and your background. Um, you moved to New York from Malaysia uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Yep. Um, and you went to Parsons. That's correct and emerged with a design degree and started your eponymous label in 1981. Correct. Okay. I probably started a tad before, but I incorporated in 81. Okay. Okay. Um, You know, the 80s in New York City, in the garment district, a magical time, really, for American design. You had those big names that are still with us really coming to the fore. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of Tommy, Donna, Calvin, Ralph. Um, what was it like during that time, starting an eponymous line and starting it in the fashion that you did, which, you know, is, is, is very specific and, and not oriented towards being a billion-dollar brand? Okay. I was looking for space, wandered up Fifth Avenue, looked up at a loft building on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 20th Street, mm-hmm. Southeast. And I said, gee, there's a space up there. So I went around the corner, visited with Mike, the elevator man, who was a bespoke elevator man. He was dressed in a dark gray uniform perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about the space, and he said, I'll bring you to the landlord. So we went up to the ninth floor, and lo and behold, there was Ephraim Trusdale. And he built harpsichords. And I said, I'm interested in your space. We went down and we looked at it, and it had a 70-foot cutting table. It was an ex-men's factory, a menswear factory. Wow. And so I and said... And did he say something like, we're looking at having the table removed? And you said, no, 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 don't touch it. <laughs> Listen, he used to come down with his tool, uh, his apron with all his tools to fix my marrow machine. So not that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he used he built the harpsichords with ivory keys. Anyway, we went up to chat, and he says, so how much can you pay? And I said, $400. He said, deal. Done. <laughs> A loft on Fifth <laughs> Avenue, full floor. Right. So right. that was my beginning. And what was, what was the energy like coming out of school with those brands not yet emerged as the household names that they are did you have a sense that that american design was really making a mark at that time or did it seem like the european houses still held sway you know i was just several years into the city so you know i come from an island pulau pinang in malaysia so i had a sense of what was going on but you know i really didn't have a formula or i didn't think that way I mean, I remember when Donna went into business because I had 
a fit model that she hired permanently. I lost my model to Donna. Permanent employment as a fit model is a, is a rare luxury, right? No, but the 80s was an exciting mo- moment in time. Uh, but where I'm concerned personally, uh, it was extremely exciting because Susan Silauskas from who was a curator at a gallery, Hayden Gallery at mm-hmm. MIT, mm-hmm. discovered me. And she was doing an exhibition called Intimate Architecture, Contemporary Clothing Design. Mm-hmm. And she thought that my work epitomized what she was trying to say. Okay. And then lo and behold, I knew Robert Maplethorpe. He photographed the catalog. So my career was launched like instantly. Wow. And that in a way can be accounted for by a lot of the sparks that were flying in the city in the 80s. I mean, knowing Robert Mablethorpe is 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 a fortunate circumstance when you're shooting well, a you lookbook, s- right? Well, you saw everybody. Yeah. You know, there was a place called Sutter's on Greenwich Avenue where you got, got the best croissants, and Robert De Niro would be hanging out there right after Taxi Driver. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a very interesting, exciting time. Yeah. But most of the time I spent working. Yes. So no studio for me. <laughs> cutting room. Right. You know, on that 70-foot cutting table, I cut my first order, which was given to me by Dawn Mello. She, I made a five-piece collection as a start, and she bought 200 pieces of my one-size-fits-all cake. And, and for those that don't know Don Mello and, and who she bought for, that was she for was which wholesale the, account? the fashion director, or perhaps more than that, at Bergdorf Goodman. Right. She was also the woman alongside, the, with the help of Richard Lambertson, hired Tom Ford for Gucci. Right. So yeah. a good eye she, for talent. She, yeah, she was legendary. Well, you have been quoted as saying, we live in a world of diminishing resources, with time our most precious commodity. Time and consumption encapsulates Yoli's zero waste ethos. Can you unpack that statement for me and, and, and maybe comment on, on sustainability and how that has um, been a feature of your line throughout? Sure. I'll illustrate it. My first order, 200 capes. Imagine that, right? So how do you deal with it? I made it one size fits all. What does that do? It helps cut down cutting time. Mm-hmm. Because instead of size four, six, eight, ten, twelve, six sizes, five sizes, you have right. one size. So energy and economy always factors in my design. Okay. And then I made the pattern myself and the marker, and there was, it's a zero waste pattern. Wow. So it was. So Very one economic. cape cut right into the next cape, that same line. You stack them Fabrication. Up. So that if, depending on how high your knife is, I had a seven-inch knife, you could stack it up that high. So 100 pieces, maybe you cut it six times. Wow. How many stacks does that make? Six into 200? I can't do math. <laughs> Don't ask me to do math on the show. 30, 33 with, yeah. with some remaining. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, so sustainability itself, and, and, and here I'm, I'm speaking about not um, environmental sustainability. Mm-hmm. We, know, we know fashion is often referred to as, as a very dirty industry. There is a lot of waste in the industry. Um, 
beyond just zero waste in terms of fabrication, is there any other elements to your design that, uh, you know, that, that work within a sustainable cycle? Uh, interestingly enough, this season, fall 2019, I decided, you know, sustainability is an overworked word. Mm -hmm. And I looked it up and sustain, to be sustainable, sustainable means endurance. So I thought about this quite a bit and I decided, I looked around and I decided that rather than start the season the same old way, which means you go out, you source fabric, you buy fabric, you do a color story, you do inspiration and you make a collection. I decided to look through my inventory and my archives and see what I could put together. Mm. And man, was that challenging. I'm because sure. yes, probably more challenging than starting from the blank. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it was a task that I thoroughly enjoyed because I think that, you know, you can't just talk about sustainability. You have to practice it. Mm -hmm. So if you have all these things lying around, just lying there, do yeah. something with them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that um, either repurposing of raw materials or what what you and I probably think of as vintage shopping or Salvation Army foraging is um, an element in the future of the business of fashion that should be paid attention to by virtue of it being, one, sustainable because you're simply buying something that already exists. It doesn't need to wind up in a landfill and you are not buying something which itself may wind up in a landfill because it's imperfect in some way or cheap in some way. Um, does that resonate with you as a, as, a, as a possible solution for the wastefulness in the industry? I think we should go into reuse. I really think that w there's too much out there. Mm -hmm. they, almost every person I know has too many items in the closet, most of which they never wear. Mm -hmm. So I think that one has to really think carefully before you make more of something. You know, you really need to think about what do people need, mm -hmm. really. And I have a little anecdote about use. I had a stranger, she's actually a professor of learning, pop into my store, and she told me that she owns a suit of mine from 1995. But she ended up with a suit, she bought a suit that day, 2018. However, when she went home, she sent me a picture of the only thing left of that suit was the top. Okay. And she sent a picture of her in her Yoli 2018 suit with a 1995 top underneath. And I thought, well, perfect. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a great symmetry to that for sure. And lovely that you have always had a storefront in addition to, you know, your design studio and your showroom for wholesale accounts. Maybe, maybe speak to that and let's blend that into the garment district itself okay. uh, because I know you're a big proponent of the garment district. I did not always have a store. Okay. I I thought when we were neighbors when you were on you, 38th when you met Street. Me, yeah. Yes. I opened the store in 2010. Okay. Oh goodness. Now, so many years without a store. I actually made in Midtown and making Midtown which was a project that I a study that I spearheaded. Mm -hmm. My partner and I wrote the RFP and we enlisted the CFTA to be our partner mm -hmm. because we needed 
an organization we couldn't as individuals apply to them. Right. And when we did that study, we identified the fact that the garment district does not have fashion on the streets. All you saw was rolling racks and fabrics and patterns. So I thought, aha, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> light went off in my head. <laughs> I'll open a store on 38th Street. And so I had my store on 38th Street. My showroom was in the back under a skylight. I mm -hmm. worked on the second floor, and my archives were in the basement. It was like a dream come true. But as you know, the hotels came. Right. And, you know, I got kicked off the block. Yeah. So now I'm, on I'm next to the Breslin. I'm on 29th Street in Nomad. A new home, but closer to my original home, was, which was in the Flatiron District. Right, right. Well, and, and this is a storyline that we've seen over and over with respect to real estate in, in the city. I'll say in the city because areas of Brooklyn are now too expensive for a lot of artists, um, let alone you know, certain brands or designers that want to have that kind of an idyllic you know, townhouse atelier um, with storefront, and and that is really a dream. I mean, you know, you hear people talk about it, and that is that is a wonderful thing to be able to actualize to have all the components in one area. Um, you're seeing the benefits with a lot of brands having a direct relationship with their consumer, although it's less so from a storefront these days and more from a website. Um, how does the Yoli brand today? engage with consumers. I know you have you you have the storefront in front of the Breslin. That's a hot area. I'm nervous for you that you're going to be, you know, the rent's going to continue to escalate. Listen, Moshe Safdi designed a building across the street from me. And there was an unusual fire in one of the brownstones. It was the corner building. Right. Well, it's gone now. Wow. So they're taking down f uh, four small brownstones. Okay. It's good, and the church sold the property mm -hmm. to the developers, so it's going to be a humongous building. I think the street's going to lose all its natural light. That's a shame. But going back to business, I actually had an inkling in the late aughts that things were undergoing serious change. So before I opened my store, I went online and created a store so that we could share the inventory. Mm -hmm. So I kind of was a little ahead of the curve where that's concerned. Right. And is that element of consumer engagement from your perspective, both as shopkeeper and e-com, you know, steward, and wholesaler, and wholesaler, you, you have all three <laughs> channels, yes. but here I'm talking, well, let's, let's compare all three channels. What is the consumer engagement like from a wholesale perspective where you're very disassociated from it, right? A buyer comes and buys, and you may go to Bergdorf's once to see who you're hanging next to, mm -hmm. but you're not there day to day. You're not there engaging in sales. Uh, to your online presence where I don't know if you have a bot that comes up and says, hey, it's Yoli, would you like help <laughs> with your selection? Or if you just correspond via email versus your actual store, where you may be there, you often are, Yes. and um, a customer walks in, maybe someone who bought back in the 90s and, and actually engages with you. I mean, I'm obviously leading you to the answer or the answer that I expect to hear, but between those three levels of engagement, how are they different and, you know, the, the impactfulness of the last one, um, you know, how much more impactful is it? Than they the are totally connected. 
Okay. You know, and that was the goal. My dream, if I ever get there, is to be online globally and have the kind of intimate, unique, authentic store in New York that somebody that shops online in Tokyo would travel to New York just to come and see us and experience made in New York. Mm -hmm. That's the dream. Because our design studio is in the back. I, so think, I think you have that a little bit. I sure hope so. <laughs> because it's really... It's a you get you get people from China, from from Japan, from Russia. From, you you get those women, and they do say that they came and made maybe not the sole visit. Yeah, you know, the sole purpose of their visit was to come to your store, but it definitely was on their list of places yeah, to I visit. I have another story for you, which okay. blew me away. We made like a humongous sale one Saturday. I wasn't at the store, but I found out that the woman came from South Africa. And the first stop she made was at the store because she left for South Africa eight years ago with a lot of my clothes, mm -hmm. and she couldn't wait to get back to buy more. See, you're too modest. I knew. Well, because we've talked about it. You know, yes, I, I visit every once in a while um, and uh, because I miss you being so close. Yeah. Um, but you're not that far away. It's a, it's a, it's a great location. And it, it seems like, there's always some woman in there with a story about when she first discovered the brand. And it, it usually wasn't last season. It was usually years ago. And maybe she's there with her daughter or maybe she's there on her own. Mm -hmm. But it is the, the, the brand itself has that kind of a, a, of a pull. And I think a good portion of that is not putting engagement with customers aside. Let's talk product for a bit. Your design, your design perspective has always been unique. Um, the fact that, you know, someone from MIT schooled in architecture sought you out for the elements that are sculptural or architectural in your apparel design it isn't lost on anyone listening that knows you. Um, tell us about your design process. How do you engage in it? Um, and what inspires you to create a new season? Or are you in a mode where you really, you view it as seasonless and you're making slight modifications to an existing line that you, that you think is the right line? You know, it's all of the above. Okay. Because, you know, you can't really isolate anything. I mean, there's intimate architecture, which, which is clothing as shelter. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's intimate architecture. There were a few architects like running around thinking that fashion was trying to, you know, get some voila from the term architecture, you know, but it really wasn't. I mean, you know, you have to think about all the interstitial spaces that your clothing wraps you in, right? Mm -hmm. So there's space. You think about space. You don't think about just the space that you're enclosed in. You think about the space that you occupy. Like right now, you're a shape within a space. You're in a square box, right? So I think about all those things. I think about material. I think about, it's like, I think it was Luke Kahn that said the brick knows what it wants to be. So my t <laughs> materials all know what they want to be. Right. So I have to listen very hard to them and listen to them whisper to me. And then there are people and their needs. And then there's, of course, the manufacturing process which is undergoing so much change. I have a fabric. I tend to use the successful fabrics uh, forever. 
and but I decided at a forever moment that we had to put them together differently. So I have a collection where I lasered everything and sealed everything rather than stitched them. So all these things and color, color is very influential. I mean, it's emotional. Mm -hmm. And then there's architecture, there's art, and there's music. And so all of it, it's like, I can't separate them. Right, right. What are some of the things that, that you do as a company or that you think individuals can do that um, really underscore a, an acknowledgement of, of where we are today as a planet, where we are today as a society? This was a surprise because, you know, I didn't know anything was going on. Mm -hmm. But on the first, way, first day of New York Fashion Week for Men's... Mm -hmm. Which was Monday, a couple right. days ago. Somebody Instagrammed me a photograph on Instagram of Billy Porter, who, as you know, is CFDA's ambassador right. for fashion, New York Men's Fashion One Week. One of them. There are a few, yes. but yeah. And he was wearing a Yoli jumpsuit wow. with a hat, wow. looking absolutely glorious, Yeah, competing with the graffiti behind him because it was a jungle print. But so I think that there are no boundaries anymore. Mm-hmm. And as much as fashion pushes the boundaries, I think there are a lot of other things that impact on what we make and what we wear. And it has to do with our condition. Like the human condition is under a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. And the world is under a lot of stress. The ocean's under a lot of stress. There's yeah. a lot to think about. Yeah. So I think that my little contribution is to be as thoughtful as possible with what we do like we no longer ship clothes in plastic bags we just leave a note in the carton we do like the final wrapping has to be in plastic because boxes get wet mm -hmm. and then i thought about really kind of mundane things like i go to Stumptown twice a day so i sat down one day and i said that that's 365 times two Plastic. Do I need to do more math? Um, no, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, how many cups and right, right. plastic caps are you going to waste? Yeah. So, you know, I go to Stumptown with my own mug. There you go. Now it's so back it's, to the old, you know, having your beer mug behind the bar or your pipe hanging from the ceiling. But I think that it, this is something, it's so small, it's something that everybody can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's what we do as individuals that makes the biggest difference, not what they do. Don't look to other people. Look at, your, you know, look at the people around you and yourself. So nobody's allowed to bring in plastic knives and forks. They have to have their own cutlery at work. Very small things. Yeah. But I think that if everybody took care of the little things, a lot of things would improve. Well, so... Um you had an influencer wearing your garments, your garment uh, during during Men's Fashion Week. We've seen the rise of the influencer as a component that brands use to promote. Uh, that obviously was a very organic one. You didn't even know it was happening. That's the purest form of, I think, influencer marketing. It's 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 the real form. He looks so cool. That's, I was so happy. You, you got to start dressing me. 
Oh, I can't wait. Doug, <laughs> Not that kidding? I'm an influencer. But I it, have the perfect coat for you. I know, I know. Well, we'll get to the coat, which okay. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm eyeing with, with a lot of desire. But uh, the, the, the age of the influencer, the rise of the influencer, what do you think about it from the perspective of the fashion industry and how you see brands using it? You know, from the perspective of the fashion industry, I have none. I have no perspective on the fashion industry. I don't know what the hell is going on. And I think maybe somebody does, but I doubt it. <laughs> well, there are a lot of things going on. It's, it's, it's a complicated question um, because there are a lot of different viewpoints being put forward, certainly. But, but to maybe refine the question, the influencer themselves uh, and, and that role, which was maybe traditionally handled by an ad campaign, which was there to create a mood or a feeling behind the brand and involved several models, uh, a photographer or more than one photographer. Now that has, to a degree, been supplanted by latching on to someone that has created that mood and that feeling behind themselves as an influencer. Uh, maybe that's been done with the help of traditional media because they themselves are a model, but maybe it's been done purely by themselves on social media platforms. They've got an Instagram feed and they've got a Pinterest page, all of which speaks to some perspective that resonates with consumers or brands feel resonates with a the consumer they want. And so appropriating the influence of that individual is, is is becoming marketing 101 in in this new age of uh, which magazines are going to survive no one's watching tv how does one promote a brand what are your thoughts about those that as, as a model and influencers themselves you know they, they, they come in all shapes and sizes quite literally right mm -hmm. so um, what do you think about that? Is it a democratization of, of brands speaking to their consumers uh, through real people? Or is it really just advertising and marketing under a different guise that is, you know, seems to, to smack of populism but doesn't? I think it's what works now. I don't know what will work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I think the trick if you're in fashion, is to figure out what works tomorrow and not dwell on what's working today. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, let me give you um, one you've probably answered a hundred times. But for you, what is the difference between fashion and style? Okay. Fashion is what's in style. Style is forever. You have style. Thank you. <laughs> and as far as your customer, when you are designing for them, do you have a particular person in mind and you want to reflect her style through the design? Or is it back to your notions of space and one's personal space and that, that the garment is a home? that they can inhabit, but it's it's less so a, a statement outward of, of some personal style. I think good design is universal. So when, let, let's step back from just clothes. 
what are the things we have that are well designed? Paperclip, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people do try to change just its shape, but basically it is what it is. A pencil is really well designed. Mm-hmm. So I think about things that work for many different types of people, different ages, different genders, and I like my work to be universal in its appeal. So like I wear some of my clothes, but men wear some of my clothes. I don't design the menswear under Yoli menswear, it's just Yoli. Mm -hmm. But the guys that come in and buy the clothes for themselves don't question it. And you know, they transcend age barriers. So I think that that's what I seek, mm-hmm. is something that's balanced and proportioned well and designed well and fully functional. It's interesting because your garments do have a high fashion component. Um, they don't look like workwear, mm-hmm. I guess, is, is, is my point. Have you ever been drawn to uh, a, a, a more purely functional style for someone working? So, so in a way, the function of your, of your garments, it's not for someone who's a photographer or a ditch digger or, or out breaking broncos. It's for someone who you know, is living in an urban environment mainly Right. So, so maybe speak to, were you ever drawn towards more functional wear or are there elements in these clothes that, that are more functional uh, they are. That, that, that we don't see? And, you know, well, a lot of women who own my clothes wear them forever, which is like, darn, you know, how are you going to run a business if your clothes last forever? <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. So I get, I make some things that like I have a pair of pants, they're in a really wonderful fabric that you can wash. And that pan runs from zero, zero to 16. And of course the best selling sizes tend to be on the two extremes, mm-hmm. but I do get calls from people wanting to replace their pants. I got a call the other day from a salesperson at Bergdorf because a customer, I hate to say this, customer came to try and replace a 20-year-old cape that she bought from Bergdorf. <laughs> Maybe that's the future, though. I, mean, I don't Customer know. expectation has gotten very, very high, but that's a new one, a two-decade-old garment um, yes. in for return. Wow. Yeah. So she came down and bought another one. And guess what? We're still selling it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, good, and and, and without it. wastefulness of the product, if it's yeah. the cape you were speaking but of. But you see, the fact that we're still selling it talks to longevity of good design. You see, it, it works, so it, it works forever. Yeah. Well, so you know in my book, The Laws of Style, I talk a lot about how white-collar professionals, men, um, are best advised to present themselves in an era of casualization that we see ourselves in. Dealing with the the suit becoming, for many, they feel culturally perhaps an outdated vehicle for conveying professionalism, but not sure how they do it with more casual clothing. Uh, I 
choose to wear the suit most days just because uh, maybe maybe I don't. Uh, I do love those choices, but I feel the suit is, is, is a powerful vehicle for that still. Um, and maybe I'm just a, a traditionalist at heart. But for you as a designer, as a social activist, uh, as, uh, as a woman gallivanting about town, how do you choose to present yourself and what do the clothes that you choose to wear, how do they do that? You know, if you looked in my closet, you'd think that they were men's clothes because it tends to be monochromatic. Mm-hmm. And Well, for instance, today I'm wearing a man's jacket but it doesn't have to be a men's jacket. It's a jacket. Mm-hmm. So my, I think some of what I do has to do with efficiency. I have a very, very busy schedule, so I like to be able to be layered enough that I can unlayer according to the condition. Mm-hmm. So I have a practical mindset, but I also understand that your silhouette and how you walk and how you sit and how you stand is affected by the clothes you wear. So I wear clothes that really move well. Mm -hmm. Well, so let's get into my four W questions for you, which is what are you wearing? We know you have a a tailored uh, jacket on, but can you lay out the rest of your outfit for our listeners who aren't watching on YouTube? Well, I have a coat that Doug's gonna model. (laughs) I have a vest. Soon. Here's my quilted vest that I wear all the time. It's a great layer piece. Mm-hmm. It has a hood. has a hood. Right. And the hood has ties, so, you know, it never blows off your head. Good. Except Very for light zipper. as well. Secret pocket, see? Your phone, your glasses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And light as a feather. Light as a feather. So it goes under everything. And a pair of jeans and boots. And boots, black and boots, socks. black belt, black banded watch as well. Yeah, I have an interesting watch. Look at the face. Oh, wow. What is that? It's done by an artist produced by my friend Matt Murphy. And it says TikTok. And then you've got, uh, you've got the overcoat, which I indeed will try on. It looks, it looks gorgeous. Um, how about who in the sense of which brands are you wearing um, or which designers? So we have a Yoli coat. Yoli a, coat. A Yoli vest. Um, and a black Tilla t-shirt. Okay. Um, the jeans. Uniqlo. Uniqlo. Uh, Andy Mueller's Meister boots. Dries Van Noten belt. And socks. And the, and the TikTok. Watch the TikTok watch is designed by Matt Murphy. Okay, and the socks. Uh, I love the, the, the attention I, to detail here. That I you're, got oh. the socks from Story. Okay, okay. So I don't know who made them, okay. but they have a fabulous selection of socks. Absolutely, yeah. And it and it changes yeah. along with the the story. And a Rachel's a hero. Rachel is a hero. So a wonderful collection of of who. Um, mainly Yoli, as, as expected. Um, how about when? And by when, I mean the seasonality of each garment to the extent it's a season-driven garment. Are they all fall-winter? Uh, yeah, except okay. the T-shirts year-round. Of course. And the vest is fairly year-round. 
And then finally, the why. And I think through our discussion, you have, you know, sort of talked about how you put yourself together in the morning, but the why of this particular ensemble today. Okay. Uh, I wanted you to try on the coat, so I wore <laughs> it. Good, good. I love it. Um, I wanted to talk about the T-shirt because I love it so much. Um, and the other things I wear all the time. Yeah. So it's it winter. would be like it's, if I yeah. if I didn't wear this, it would be odd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very yoli. Um, we spoke a bit about your customers uh, being men and women. And I personally, you know, on, on the front lines of the business of fashion, I'm seeing a lot of unisex business propositions come out that are stated as unisex. It's, they're making a point of uh -huh. the brand being unisex. You clearly, ethically as well as commercially, have always been unisex in the sense that, that not only do you why would you ever have an issue with a man buying your clothes? But you've encouraged it, and it, and it, and it happens. You design with it as a possibility. Um, but what do you think of, of pure unisex business propositions? And do you think that with some of the more gender-fluid um, cultural mores that young people are following, do you think that it is merely a marketing ploy and that people are kind of tagging on to a more gender fluid culture? Or do you think that it's the future and that a decade, two decades, 50 years from now, everything will be unisex? I think it's as old as time. I come from the land of sarongs. Mm. So <laughs> you know where that comes from. Yeah. And sarongs fit men, they fit women, they fit children. And it's a piece of cloth, zero waste. Yeah. Well, Yoli, that's a wrap. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for sharing time with us. And um, as far as uh, you know, your efforts and being rewarded, you'll get a copy of the Laws of Style. Yay! Yes. Which, I can't uh, wait. Excellent. And yes. uh, you can have it on the shelf down in the store for for men uh, that are that are looking. Um, that's any a good idea. any social media shout outs for you? You have an Instagram and a uh, it's Twitter. Yoli Inc. Y E O H L E E I N C. That's also Yoli N Y. And hashtag zero waste sustainability. Excellent. Made in New York. <laughs> Yoli. Very good. Well, thanks for coming in. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.